The scripture reading for today comes from Proverbs chapter 30, verses 24 to 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is the king's palaces. The word of the Lord. Lord be with you. Thank you. Happy Father's Day to everyone. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, on this day we pray and give thanks to our fathers, to all whose continued presence we celebrate, and to all whose absence we miss. We ask for your blessing upon all the fathers in your church today, whether they are anxious first-timers or relaxed fourth-timers. We ask also for your blessing upon all who have fathered us in the faith. Strengthen the resolve of all would-be fathers that as stewards of your glorious gospel, they would faithfully raise their children in accordance with your word. May your truth shine in and through them so that their children will see your light. Guide their footsteps to walk closely with you and empower them that they may provide, protect, and nurture their families. May they grow as men of faith, of prayer, and compassion. And when they falter, as we all must, help them to seek your forgiveness and the forgiveness of those they have wronged, so that joy in their relationships may be restored. And now we ask for ears to hear so that your word might take root in our hearts and that we may more humbly, confidently, and joyfully walk in your truth and grace. We ask and we thank you, Lord, our Father, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our reading uh, comes today from the book of Proverbs. I've mentioned before that very few preachers preach from this book because Proverbs isn't particularly um, Christian. There isn't a clear gospel message, and instead we mostly get the kind of general wisdom that you might find in things like Aesop's fables, or some of it actually reads like life hacks that you might find on YouTube or TikTok these days. Be humble. Be diligent. Be faithful in your relationships. Wear a sunblock or at least a hat. Don't drink and drive. Microwave a day-old donut for eight seconds and it'll taste better. When picking a watermelon, all things being equal, look for the female watermelons, which you can see because it has a smaller belly button on the bottom. I just learned that this week. 
These are the kind of useful life lessons that you would pass on from one generation to the next. And so the book of Proverbs may not be a spiritual in the kind of traditional sense, but there is much in here that can benefit us. In particular, one of its themes, perhaps its primary theme, is the value of wisdom and the need for us to pursue and acquire it. In the reading today, we are given some wisdom that we might glean from observing nature. I know that we all prefer the indoors, and our general style of living precludes a lot of interaction with the outdoors and nature. But because of the pandemic, perhaps some of you, like me, have found yourself paying a little more attention to the outdoors, and perhaps even learning from it. As Jesus also taught in the Sermon on the Mount, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So about a month ago, I took that advice and I looked at the birds in the air, and I noticed that there was a robin's nest in my backyard with three baby robins. And over the last several weeks, I peeked in the nest every day and watched those three little baby robins grow. And eventually, they left the nest one by one. That's it. Three baby robins grew up, and they flew away, and now the nest is empty. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, in our reading today, we get a different lesson from nature. Four examples are given of something that is small but exceedingly wise. The implication for us is that we should learn from them. And even though we might think of ourselves as, as small or weak or powerless, we still can be exceedingly wise. This is actually a fundamental principle of the gospel. The world tells us to look to the strong, to imitate the successful, the rich, the powerful. But God says, look to the small, look to the weak. Again and again we see this in the scriptures that God looks down on the proud and calls us to humility. As Mary sang when learning the news that she would be carrying the Savior, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud, the, the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And this is what God does all the time. And the Proverbs this morning calls us once again to look at the small for wisdom. So let's consider quickly the examples that we are given. First, the ants. The ants are a people not strong, and yet they provide their food in the summer. The ants actually make their first appearance in Proverbs 6, where we are admonished, go to the ant, O sluggard, that's you lazy bum, Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. I learned that the study of ants is called myrmecology, and myrmecologists might dispute the characterization that ants have no chief or leader. 
But that's not really the point. The broader lesson here that we are supposed to learn is that ants are diligent. They're small, they're not strong, but together they gather a lot of food and are prepared for the lean winter months. That's good life advice, right? Work hard, don't be lazy, and you're less likely to be hungry and be in need. You can overcome your weaknesses and limitations through diligence and by good planning for the future. And perhaps another way of thinking about this is that ants understand the rhythms of the seasons. You might also recall that during the days of King David, it was said of the tribe of Issachar that they were men who understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. They understood the times and therefore what they ought to do. I feel like this is what we've been doing lately in our church. I can tell you that our leadership has been in more meetings than we have ever been in in the history of the church. Far many more meetings. It's been an incredibly tiring but necessary experience as we have tried to understand the times, these extraordinary times, and to know what to do. And I'm so thankful for all who have been so diligent and faithful during the season so that we might provide food, worship, for the congregation in the summer and in the coming months in the fall and winter. Secondly, the rock badgers. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. I had to look this one up because I didn't know what a rock badger was. I would describe them as an overweight squirrel without a bushy tail. They too are described as not mighty, but they are wise enough to their, have their homes among the rocky cliffs. I would say that building a home among the rocks is a lot smarter than what their skinnier lookalikes, the squirrels, do. So this week, um, my car has been making some funny noises, and uh, I took it to the mechanic, and he found, among other issues with my car, two handful of nuts in the wheel well of my car. Apparently, this is not uncommon these days because people are leaving their cars and their driveways. They're not driving the cars. They're just sitting there. And so squirrels think, hey, I'm not going to go dig. I can just pop them in this wheel here. Um, so one of my kids actually was concerned that now this squirrel or this family of squirrels might go hungry because its stash of nuts is now gone. But I have no such sympathy. Um, I kind of want to just shout at the school, you know, you, you dumb squirrels, you know, go bury your nuts among the cliffs. Learn from the, the rock badgers. Um, these rock badgers, they overcome their natural weakness, their softness, by taking defensive cover in well-protected, unmoving rocks among the cliffs. They remind me of what Jesus said about building our homes, of building our lives upon the rocks and that those who do so shall be able to withstand the floods and the storms of life that inevitably come. Again, that's good advice. Third, the locusts. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. Again, the point is not to be entomologically correct. Locusts do not march according to rank or regiment, but swarms of locusts do seem 
like an army marching together as they decimate entire fields of crops. And even though they don't seem to have a leader, they are able to work together to accomplish this incredible devastation. So no matter how powerless one might feel individually, it's possible to have enormous impact together by being of the same mind and working together toward the same goal. Now what really stands out in these first three examples, at least for me, is that the ants and the rock badgers are referred to as people with the implication that there is strength in community. The locusts are not called that, but it's assumed considering that they're described as an army, and we think of locusts in terms of swarms. It's not just diligence and understanding the times on your own. It's not building your own home among the rocks and to be safe by yourself. And it's certainly not about marching alone. The small have wisdom because they work as a people together in community for one another. You know, thanks to COVID, I know that we have all come to more deeply appreciate the importance of community. And we're now in the process of trying to reimagine what community might mean and look like as we move forward. You might have seen a recent poll that came out last week from the University of Chicago which found that 18% of US adults, that's like 46 million people, who say they have either just one or zero friends that they can trust for help in their personal lives, such as emergency childcare needs, a ride to the airport, or support when they fall, fall sick. That's like one in five adults either have one or no one that they can call to for some help when they're in need. Furthermore, another 28% say that they just have one person or no one that they can trust to help draft a resume, connect to an employer, or help with workplace challenges. Those are staggering numbers of isolation and loneliness and disconnect. It's not surprising, but it's still, for me, heartbreaking. The poll also found that the percentages are significantly higher among people of color. They didn't have a specific number for uh, Asian Americans, but I suspect that those numbers are also similarly high. Now, the reasons for this isolation are many and complex, but the most basic lesson that we can learn from this, as well as from the ants, the rock badgers, and the locusts, is that good protection against weakness and hunger and loneliness is community. I know that's obvious, but that's the wisdom that we can learn from these small creatures. And fourth, there's the lizard. The lizard you can take in your hands, but it is in king's palaces. This example to me feels like it shouldn't belong here. The first three examples are in the plural, the ants, the rock badgers, and locusts, but the lizard is in the singular. And actually, it's unclear whether it should be translated as lizard. If you have an older uh, translation of the Bible, such as the King James Version, instead of lizard, you will see it translated as a spider, right? There's a pretty big difference between a spider and a lizard. In Hebrew, there are different words actually for a lizard and a spider, and neither of them are used here. 
This word appears only here in the Bible. It's the only time. And so scholars really are not sure what it means. So they know it's something small that has to do with the hands. But whether it's a lizard that you can take in your hands, or whether it's a spider that takes hold with her hands, the point is that they are in king's palaces. They are small and inconsequential, but they can be found in the highest of places. In fact, those, you know, some of you I know are like uh, clean freaks and you keep your house immaculately clean. But even then you know somehow you get a spider or two sneaking in. They, they, they somehow find their way into the home. So it's not just kings who reside in palaces and reminds us that we all, despite our weaknesses, can also find ourselves in the highest of places. And one day we will even find ourselves dining with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, these four examples, as I said, they're, they're good life lessons and, and we can even extract a little bit of a gospel lesson about humility from them. So this morning, uh, in this spirit, I, I wanna share with you what I've been learning uh, from another small creature, and that's the cicadas. As most of you know by now, this year's brood of cicadas has been massive. It's been a cicada apocalypse in my town. I mean, it's been crazy. I think if Jesus were here, instead of saying, look at the birds in the air or the lilies of the field, he'd say, look at the cicadas in the trees. Last week, the decibel level from all the singing, all the love songs that the cicadas were making, out in front of my house was 85 decibels. One block away, it reached at times over 100 decibels. I mean, they are just, it's just as constant. And um, it's inescapable. And my daily uh, walks and, and jogs around the neighborhood, um, I'm out there for about half an hour. Um, at least several of them will either land on me to hitch a ride or they'll just like bump into me and bounce off. Um, and most recently, one of them smashed into my glasses as I was running and, and almost made me fall. And they're just, they're just all over the ground. Like, you can't not step on them. And I know that most people find cicadas kind of gross, or at the very least, annoying, uh, including everyone in my family. But they have been a source of tremendous entertainment for me. For example, remember last week, I said that the word shakam evolved from a word meaning shoulder to a verb meaning to do early in the morning or to do again and again. Uh, maybe you already forgot that lesson. Well, at my house uh, recently, the word Mr. Joe has similarly taken this kind of evolution. A couple of weeks ago, one of my kids was helping me uh, grill some dinner outside. And a few minutes after he or she came into the house, he or she suddenly started to just, just, just freak out, and ran around the house and just practically ripped his, his shirt off. <laughs> and someone commented, oh, he did a Mr. Joe. Let me explain. You all know Joe Kang. You have known him as a self-controlled, calm, rational scientist who carries himself with the appropriate dignity and decorum befitting an elder of this church. 
That's certainly how my kids would describe, respectfully describe, Mr. Joe. Well, 17 years ago, Mr. Joe was in a parking lot. He had just taken his son, Andrew, who was then just two years old, for a checkup at the pediatrician's office. And as he describes it, somehow a cicada found its way inside my shirt and started buzzing and moving around like crazy. Seconds later, he found himself half naked with his shirt off in the middle of the parking lot for everyone to see. I know you all wish you could have been there. Well, the same thing happened at my house. Unbeknownst to my son, a cicada had caught a ride into the house on his shirt, which he only noticed after he was in the house. And so, he did a Mr. Joe. He ripped off his shirt. Maybe 17 years from now, someone else will do this, and someone will comment, oh, he did a Mr. Max. Well, I know you all must have other entertaining stories about cicadas. But I should say, more than entertainment, I've been really intrigued by and have been reflecting on what I think is the most curious thing about them, and that is the fact that they have this 17-year life cycle. I mean, it's, it's so strange, isn't it? 17 is an odd number. And I don't mean it just mathematically odd and even odd. I mean, it's just a strange, strange number of years to have a life cycle. It's so random. Who thinks in terms of like 17-year cycles? We make annual plans, or we might think in terms of like four years, like uh, the Olympics or the elections every four years. Nations and committees, and maybe some of you, you might envision like a, a five-year or maybe a 10-year plan for your life or your company or for your country. But who thinks in terms of 17 years? As I thought about this, I realized that there is one biblical family for whom 17 years has a lot of significance. In the book of Genesis, we are told the story of Joseph. You know the story. He was the most favored son among 12 sons of Jacob. And in what is probably the most unwise act of parenting, Jacob gave his son Joseph a spectacularly loud and colorful coat in front of everyone as a sign that you are indeed my favorite. Now, I know some of you parents have a favorite child, but I know you at least try to hide it. Not Jacob. He flaunted it. And so it's understandable that Joseph's 11 brothers would be jealous and even murderously angry with him, especially when Joseph acted like an immature brat and tattletale. Now, the detail you may not remember from that story is that Joseph was 17 years old at the time. Just a random number. It was at the age of 17 that his brothers sold him into slavery and lied to their father so that their father thought that his son had been killed by wild animals. And so for the next 22 years, Jacob lived with the pain and the sorrow that his favorite son was dead. 
But then, at the age of 130 years, he received the news that his son was not dead, but in fact, alive. And not just alive, but that he had risen to the position of second in command of all of Egypt, and that he was inviting him and the rest of the family to immigrate to Egypt and to live there in the best of lands. And Genesis 47 says this, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Isn't that interesting? Jacob knew his son Joseph for the first 17 years of his life. And then there was this middle period where he, he thought he was dead. And then the very last 17 years of his life, he got to know his son all over again. His life was bracketed by two generations of cicadas. And what I love about the trajectory of Jacob's life story is that at the end of his life, he's able to bless all of his children, not just Joseph. Genesis 49, 28 says, he blessed them, that is his children, every one with the blessing appropriate to him. Likewise, Joseph too learned. He didn't hold a grudge against his brothers, but rather he testified, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Both men learned and matured and grew in grace over the cycle of cicadas from one generation to the next. Both fathers show me that at the beginning of life or at the end, you can still grow in grace and faithfulness. It doesn't take long to go from a Mr. Joe to a Mr. Max. 17 years ago, the last time Brood X was around, I was 40 years old. 40 years old. I realized the other day that Charles Chang is also 40 years old this year. He's my age, one cicada cycle ago. We had a, a meal together, our families recently, and I told him, God willing, we'll have another meal together 17 years from now with the cicadas singing outside, and we'll be talking about Selah's boyfriend, just like we're talking about Lydia's boyfriend now. I joked, behold your future. But here's what I didn't say then, which I want to say now. You can have a different future. You don't have to be me. You can look at me and, in fact, see what you don't like. And you can make changes so that you don't end up like me 17 years from now. As a young 40-year-old, I didn't think much about what 57 would look like only that I would be older. In retrospect, I wish I had been more thoughtful. There are at least a few things I wish I had done differently. And so with that wisdom now, I hope I can live the next 17 years better 
more faithfully, more joyfully, more graciously. 17 years from now, I'll be 74 years old. I think I got the math right. God willing, I hope I'm reasonably healthy and active in the life of a church as a retired pastor. <laughs> and that my kids will have all moved out of the house. <laughs> and my wife and I will be really empty nesting. God willing, I'll be around to enjoy another generation of cicadas and be entertained by a new generation doing a Mr. Max. Of course, if my wife gets her wish, we will be living in a town far, far away from the nearest hint of a cicada. So let me just leave you with this. I know it's an odd number, but would you give some thought to where you might be 17 years from now? Not geographically. I'm asking you to think about where you want to be 17 years from now spiritually. Growing in grace is not automatic. My wife will tell you it's very easy to become a grumpy old man. For those of you who are younger than me, perhaps you can find someone who is 17 years older than you and ask them what you might expect in the next 17 years to know what should I do to be more faithful so that 17 years from now, I will have grown in grace and in faith. For sure, you have to be diligent. You have to plan. You have to understand the times. You have to be in community. And you have to pay attention to the world that God has created and to grow in wisdom. But what other steps might you take so that 17 years from now, you will have grown in grace? So that like Jacob, you can bless everyone. And like Joseph, you can provide for others and comfort them and speak kindly to them. When the cicadas come again, may God find us so faithful. Please pray with me. Lord, we, we marvel at your creation, for you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. God, help us to learn the wisdom from your creation and especially from all of your small creatures. Help us to be diligent, to understand the times and plan accordingly, to build our lives and our hope upon the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ, to march together as one for the shared and glorious work of your kingdom, to delight and be thankful to find ourselves in palaces and wherever else you might lead us. Help us to know the brevity of our days, to be faithful and thankful, to grow in wisdom and grace that we might be able to bless others. We ask all this in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.